Wonderful. Thank you, Wes. Please uh, sign up for Encounter God. It really is everything that Wes said there. It's great. Now I've, uh, let's uh, pray and we'll jump into God's Word. Lord, we want to just quieten ourselves before you, ready to receive what you have for us, Lord. I pray that you would speak really clearly to us. You'd encourage those that need encouragement, challenge those that need to be challenged. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We thank you for the work that you do in teaching and comforting us. And we just hand this time over to you, believing, Lord, that you're going to use it mightily. We ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. One of the... uh, very challenging parts of being a pastor is that you come face to face on a regular basis with some of the greatest hardships uh, and challenges that the congregation experience. You, you walk alongside people who are going through great difficulty and, and as I look out on this congregation as I'm getting to know you and certainly at the south where I pastor, so many stories, whether it be health issues and battling with cancer or various other illnesses, whether it be challenges in the family, a wayward child, or a husband or a wife who doesn't know Jesus, or being made redundant, or just so many different hardships in life, different challenges, that uh, I've noticed that there's sometimes a tendency to feel like God doesn't love us because of the hardship, and God isn't there because the challenge is happening. And we're going to see in this passage Paul, who uh, in Philippians, as we continue our series, uh, this is part three, we're going to see Paul here who is in a, a very difficult and challenging situation. He is in, uh, he's in prison, except the prison was actually house arrest, and he was chained to a Roman guard 24 hours of every day. Now, that might not seem so bad to some people, but think I know that, and I'm not expecting any show of hands, that some of us in the room can barely spend 24 hours with our own family, Uh, never mind a Roman guard, but there was zero privacy. It was designed to dehumanize, that you literally could not go to the washroom without the Roman guard coming with you, and so this was Paul's life, and yet this passage as he's writing to the Philippian church is, is just oozing with joy and and rejoicing. He's not looking at his situation and his hardship and questioning the presence of God. In fact, it seems like his challenge is magnifying God. And we're going to see as we work through some verses in chapter 1 from verse 12 onwards that there's some secrets that Paul really reveals as to how he faces this challenge, this hardship, uh, in, a, in an incredible way, and in a way that, that makes God bigger in his life and his joy more full. So we're going to, there's a few points, and, uh, and, and really what I'm looking at is, as we go through is what is the life lens, if you like? What is Paul's focus in life, and how does that serve to result in joy and rejoicing in Jesus Christ? So let, let's start off by asking the question and looking at uh, the first point. I hope my clicker's working. There's always this, oh, it's always such a relief. It's like, oh. You guys do such a great job. You're just so confident. It'll work. Just be patient. I know. 
What's Paul's hardship? What's Paul's view of hardship? Let's read just one verse to start us off in in verse 12. It says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. If you were to look at Paul's circumstance, it would be very understandable for you to think that Paul, who is at the height of his ministry, church planting, being a father, an apostolic father to the churches in that area, that that ministry seemingly now has come to an end. That it's just so successful and then suddenly it just stops and he finds himself in prison. So from the outside looking in, it would be understandable for us to go, this is not a good thing. Why would God allow this hardship to happen? Why would God allow this injustice, this evil, to come into Paul's life? And yet Paul doesn't reject God. He pulls God closer into the circumstance. As we look at the suffering and the hardship in the world... Uh, many, many people who struggle with the idea of the existence of God will use suffering and hardship as a reason not to believe in God. They'll say, because there's hardship, because there's suffering, there cannot be a God. I want to show you a, a very short clip from, uh, and some of you will have seen this before. It came out a couple of years ago. You might note, you might recognize the gentleman who's speaking. He's, he's English. He's got a very, very excellent accent. Very educated sounding. Even I think he sounds educated. Uh, and, and, you know, with the English accent and everything that I have, my accent isn't as posh as his. Um, but it's, uh, he's a comedian, a writer, an actor, Stephen Fry. And, and what he's asked by uh, an interviewer from Ireland's National Public Service Media. Media, it's the question he's asked, because Stephen Fry is a, an unapologetic atheist. The question that he's asked is this, let's say you arrive at the gates of heaven and meet God. What would you say to him? So, some of you are going to be surprised that I'm going to show you this video, because he uses some, not, not offensive language, but certainly some irreverent language when it comes to God. But I want to tell you this, this is a very, very common view in our culture. There's nothing surprising about his answer to me. And then I'm just going to very quickly unpack how I would love to sit down with Stephen Fry and have coffee and ask him some questions, very lovingly. Um, So let's just watch this uh, video. So again, the question is, let's say you arrive at the gates of heaven and meet God, what would you say to him? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, What kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, 
utterly monstrous and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living. Wow. I'm always intrigued at how angry people are about a God that they don't believe in. And you can see, as he's answering the question, and I know it was a very good question, that he gets very passionate about his answer. And then he finishes uh, with an, an incredible statement at the end there. So here's, here's what I want to say. This is why I'm doing this. This is the one side of the scale when it comes to looking at hardship and challenge and sickness and difficulty in life. You've just heard the probably one side of the, there cannot be a God. And I'm saying, well, in Philippians, it seems that Paul doesn't say there can't be a God because of my hardship. My hardship proves there is a God. So here's how I, I, these are just some very gentle questions I would like to ask. And and I'm going to do it very quickly. And maybe it'll just pique your interest to actually look at some of these things yourself. And some brilliant resources uh, that you can do that. So the first question I'd want to know is that you're claiming ultimate knowledge of whether or not there is a God. So one of the criticisms towards Christians is that Christians claim that they know they know that there is a God. Whereas to say there is no God is actually making a similar claim of having ultimate knowledge. So Stephen Fry is actually saying, I know exactly how things are. So I'd love to chat with that. By the way, there's four things that I want to ask him, three of which are not religious, they're just pure logic. The fourth one is a little bit more religious, but really this is just pure logic. And how can you claim that there is no God definitively? The second thing I would want to know is how do you know those things are bad if you have no standard for good? How do you know cancer is a bad thing? How do we know that there is evil? The only reason we know that there's evil, we know that cancer is bad, or we know that suffering is wrong, is that somehow inbuilt inside of each one of us, there's an awareness of something that is good. See, now at this time of the year, and the people at the South hear this every year, is that now, now is the time when I start focusing on my front lawn. I'm not too worried about my back lawn, because people don't see that. My front lawn, though, I I try and get it to look as good as my neighbor's, and it's an impossible task because he has such an incredibly perfect, I'm not bitter, wonderful, green, luscious, edged, beautiful lawn, and then it runs into our our thing at the front with patches, and, and the only reason I know that the patches don't belong in my lawn is I can just go and look at his lawn. So I have this perfect standard to compare my lawn to. Otherwise, I would just think this is the way lawn should be. So it's exactly the same with evil and suffering. How do you know something is evil and bad? It's because inside we know, as Christians, we believe that we have an absolute standard of good, which is God. So Stephen, I would want to know, how do you know cancer is bad? It's just a matter of opinion otherwise. The third thing I would want to know is how does removing God make the situation less problematic? Let's say there is no God. Does that mean the cancer goes away? No, of course not. Does that mean the problems disappear if there's no God? No, now you're left with a problem with no hope and no bigger story. So I would argue that your problem actually increases. So getting rid of God and not believing in God doesn't make cancer better. But it's interesting that he blames God, whom he doesn't believe in, for the cancer that's in the world. Did you notice that? And then finally, I would want to know, where do you find your hope and strength and power 
if all this is all there is? Where do you go to? This is in such stark contrast to what Paul is saying because Stephen Fry's final statement, and then we're going to move on because I don't want to preach on Stephen Fry's statement, but it's actually quite profound. He says, the moment you banish him, and I gave God a capital H there just to, you know, uh, life becomes cleaner, simpler, purer, and more worth living. Living for what? Worth living for what? You see, Paul's lens was such where he looked at his difficulty and his challenge, and it brought him hope and joy, and we're going to unpack this now, and for those of us in the room who are going through challenges and hardships, and and, and I am not belittling, in fact, I'm pressing into them with great sympathy and empathy and encouragement to say there's something bigger going on here. And if we can grasp this, Paul in his deepest, darkest time is able to say hope and love and joy and rejoicing, then Paul isn't favorite to God, therefore I can also, you can also experience this. So let's look quickly at God's view of hardship. What's God's view of hardship? We've looked at man's view, Paul's view, so now what's God's view? Uh, So Paul is looking at this hardship and he's saying, this looks bad, but it's actually really good. Look what he says in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So what Paul is saying here is my captivity is resulting in something that's really, really great. Because this Roman guard thinks that I'm chained to him, whereas actually he's chained to me. I have this captive audience 24 hours of the day, even when I go to the washroom, to tell him about Jesus. This is a good thing. And then he goes back to the rest of the guard and says, this guy never shuts up about Jesus. And Paul is going, this is great. Now, this is more than positive thinking, you know, this isn't happening to me, or it's not name it and claim it and blab it and grab it, prosperity gospel nonsense, it's none of that. This is, this is a good thing. I believe it in the depth of my bones because the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And not only that, he goes on to say, this is encouraging other people who aren't in prison and giving them courage. This is awesome. doesn't actually say that. Deep in the Greek, maybe, but this is fantastic. He has this captive audience, and he's encouraging others. You see, God, and Paul knew this, is the master at turning the worst circumstances into the greatest good. Phil mentioned last week of Joseph, and Joseph is a great example of somebody who was literally went from a pit that his own family threw him into, think you've got family problems, you know, to, to then be sold in and go through all the horrendous and prison and accusations and be forgotten about, to being prime minister of Egypt and being instrumental in actually bringing resource to a land that needed food in the middle of a famine. It was amazing how God used him. And at the end, in Genesis 50, this is what Joseph said, as for you, you meant, he's just talking to his brothers, can you imagine how they felt? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And notice Joseph's focus. He doesn't say this is a good thing for me, and it, and it was, but his focus was to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then in Romans 8, this is this classic verse that people use as a verse grenade. Have you had one of these thrown at you? You go to some real challenges as a Christian, and, and somebody just comes along and says, oh, Romans 8, 28, um, all things work together for good. Um, just hang in there, and then they run off. This is a wonderful verse. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, notice it doesn't say for their good. Now, that does come, but God has this global view that we don't have. Paul understood that his hardship was actually resulting in good for other people. So what does this mean for us? Oftentimes, friends, please listen, we don't see the good that comes out of our darkest challenges. Job never was told why he went through all that difficulty by God. God could have told him, but he never explained to Job, this is why all this has happened, Job. It was only when Job got to heaven he was able to see, okay, well, millions of people were going to be encouraged by my story. But when you're in the middle of that challenge, to have the perspective of Paul to say, listen, I know this is difficult, but I believe in a God that is going to turn this into good. I may never see it. I don't understand what it might look like, but this is going to impact other people that I am unaware of. Paul's confidence that his circumstances will lead to a wider good causes him to be joyful. So isn't it possible that that which you are going through has a ripple effect into other people's lives? Maybe the way that you are living through it, believing, joy-filled, rejoicing, holding on to God, that there's observers and there's listeners and there's readers that hear your story and are actually encouraged. Their faith is lifted up and you're not even aware. Paul has that view. But not only that, there's something else going on as we carry on through the verse in verse 18. It says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This word deliverance is actually translated in the rest of the New Testament, this is not a good translation, as salvation. And a quick reading of that, you might think that it actually says that this will all turn out well. I'll get free. I, I will be freed. I'll be delivered. And I'll, and I'll be able to walk out of prison. But Paul's not actually saying that. Because there's a word in the passage that you need to notice, which is the word through. It says, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. What Paul is saying is that through this circumstance... I will be saved. Through your prayers, through Jesus Christ allowing this to happen, I will be saved. Now there are three different tenses for the word salvation in the New Testament. The first uh, tense, the word saved if you like, is that we're saved from our sins, which is a past tense. We're saved from the sins that we committed and we're forgiven. Paul is not referring to that. He's not saying this hardship will result in my being saved, as in my sins forgiven. This isn't penance. 
The second one is the present tense, which is that being saved from the power and the effect of sin in my life today. And then there's a third tense, which is the future tense, which is the ultimate saving from sin, which is when we get to heaven and there is no sin. So Paul is actually referring here to a present tense. He's saying, effectively, this hardship, please listen, is saving me. In other words, it's making me a better person. It's saving me from the power of sin in my life. It's a really intriguing thing to say. Later on in the book, he refers to, and we all know this, it's a beautiful passage, he says, that I might know him, Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection. We like to stop there. That's a great coffee cup verse. I would drink coffee out of that very happily. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Yes. But then he carries on. He says, and the fellowship of his suffering. Mm, not so keen on that bit. I don't want to suffer, but Paul is saying, I need this in order to be saved. I wonder if we were really honest, and and I don't want you to put your hands up unless you're particularly excited, um, is how many of you would agree with me and say that it's through the greatest hardship and struggle in your life that you have grown the most as a Christian? It's those times where God seems to allow things to happen, as evil as they are, that are a catalyst for us to pray. Because we have nothing else. We have no other option. We have nowhere else to go other than on our knees crying out to God. And it draws us closer to him because what happens through that hardship is that Paul is saying, I'm being saved because I'm having things revealed to me about myself that otherwise I would never actually know. So we can look at our challenges and our hardship and see that not only is there a greater good that's going to happen, there is an ultimate good that's going to happen inside of me as well because it's going to be the Holy Spirit saying, you know what, Glenn? Anger. Let's let's deal with that. Your response. Let's deal with that. Let's deal with the self-pity. Let's deal with that issue that otherwise would not have been highlighted if it hadn't been for, the, uh, for the, the challenge. And so Paul is saying this is a good thing. This is a good thing. I can rejoice and be joyful because it's making me more like the one that I love, which is Jesus Christ. I can rejoice because God is doing something good, even though I am chained in prison. What an incredible way of looking at life. How do you beat somebody like that? That they would look at every circumstance as an opportunity for God to highlight something in their life so that they could improve and become better. See, in verse 6 he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is not cast down. He's not depressed, he's not despairing, because he has a clear picture of God's plan. He's not pretending it's not happening. He's very, in fact, he says elsewhere, I boast about my weaknesses. Why? Because Jesus Christ is doing something in me that otherwise he could not if it wasn't for the hardship. You need to do theological gymnastics to make the Bible say that hardship is not part of life. You need to do theological gymnastics and ignore the majority of the Bible to say that suffering and hardship is not part of what Christian life is about. 
Because God uses it. Does that mean that he's capricious and callous and doesn't care? Absolutely not. Do you remember Jesus wept when Lazarus died? Even though he knew he was going to be resurrected. He still wept. He still felt the pain. He's still there. He understands. And yet he whispers at the same time, trust me, it's going to be okay. You might never see how. You might not see the good that comes out of this situation. But if you love me, if you believe in me, then given all eternity, I will show you. What a beautiful way to live. So how are we approaching life? Do we do it the Stephen Fry way where we reject God because there's evil or suffering? Or do we do it the Paul way that says because of the hardship and suffering, I can rejoice in him because this is going to be good. It's going to change me and my world for the better. This is a radical change of view. It's like Paul had just had his spiritual sight and lens changed. Many years ago, about 14 years ago, I had some, uh, some uh, and this might surprise some of you, some cosmetic surgery. And uh, yeah, it went very quiet last night as well when I said that. Um, and uh, the cosmetic surgery that I had, and it is classed in Britain anyway as cosmetic surgery, I had my eyes lasered because I was as blind as a bat. And uh, I don't know if you use that expression, but I'm sure you'll understand what I mean. Like just glasses and contact lenses, I was having all sorts of issues. So I took the plunge and decided to have my eyes lasered. Now, there are several things about this whole procedure that were very uncomfortable and difficult for me just because of the type of person I am. And, and I don't want to put you off if you're considering laser surgery because it may be very different now. First of all, please understand it's not like the James Bond movie with the big red thick laser coming towards you. It's nothing like that. It's far more subtle. But the first thing that I I noticed that I didn't like was uncomfortable is that I'm one of those people, and I knew this would happen last night. As soon as I said this, somebody actually said it to me in the foyer. So I'm just being vulnerable. Please Please just be gentle with me. I'm not somebody who likes to stand really close to people to talk. I, I, I like kind of just, it's not, you don't have to be all the way over there, but just, do you know, is there anybody else who understand what I mean? Like some people are really close, and optometrists get really, really close, like right in your face. That just like set me off straight away. That was the first thing. The second thing is, is they put droplets into my eye that froze my eye. And I remember him coming towards me, the guy, not from like running from the other side of the road. It was very, very gentle. But he came towards me with what looked like a pen and pressed my eye. What was weird was I couldn't feel it, but I could just see what looked like cellophane being pressed by a finger, just it all kind of creasing. And it was my eye freaking out. Then the lasering started, and all I could think of was, I hope he's got steady hands. Now, I understand he's not like holding it over me like some industrial drill, but it's still, I was like, and, and, it just, and then the worst thing kicked in. I'm sorry. It was all worth it, by the way. I want to say that now, in case I, uh, people are getting disappointed that I'm giving such detail. But the worst thing was the smell of my own burning flesh. And I actually asked him later, what was the smell? That was you, burning, (laughs) burning my eyes. It wasn't pleasant. The results, though, to this day, 
Honestly, every day, I am so grateful I got it done. I'm a little bit deaf, but I can see really well. And I believe, I believe it's a gift because if I'm a preacher, I can see if you're asleep at the back. Every one of you. I can see you're on your phones or whatever. It's just that gift that God has given me. I have fantastic vision. But it was worth it. Can I tell you that the spiritual sight is far more important than your visual sight? And some of you have a a blindness where you are missing out on the glory of this world, the glory of what Jesus is doing, because you haven't had your lenses changed. And I'm saying that to Christians as well. That somehow things are just fuzzy. We don't see the way that God sees And you have no idea that you're missing out. But the procedure I went through to have my eyes lasered was unpleasant, but worth it. Paul's process of becoming more like Jesus and having his spiritual sight renewed was unpleasant. But I know that he would say it was worth it. So what was it that he saw clearly? I think it is summed up in this statement. This is what Paul saw. What was it that made Paul go rejoicing through hardship? Verse 19, it says, This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. See how he's so Christ-centric. Everything is about Jesus. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What was it that Paul saw? How is it that Christ was so honored? How was it that he felt no shame, that he's unashamed? Where does the joy come from? I think that really it's in this little word here. For. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. With all this going on, the result is, my expectation is, My sight is Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. This one thing is all he needed was Jesus Christ. You could put him anywhere. You could take anything away. You could give whatever you wanted to him. He would still say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it begs the question, how would we fill in this gap? For me to live is to have what? Is it for me to live is to have pleasure or relationships, health, family, friends, money? And my gentle question would be this, if any of those things were to collapse, would you collapse with it? Because if we're centering our lives on something like that and and it starts to get crushed, would we be crushed? Where would we go for our hope and our power and our strength if it is in something that is outside of us and we place everything in that is so delicate? And And I'm very careful how I say this and I know that there is a great deal of financial challenge right now. But friends, we we need to be careful that we don't place all our hope and power and strength and expectation into finances. Because if they are taken away, do we get crushed? I'm not belittling that, but if we have our faith and hope and strength in something else, then regardless of what is taken away, we are still strong. And we're able to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. I can still rejoice because this too will be a good thing. Why? Because he loves me. See, Paul had one focus and he knew it would stand. 
You can point at any religion in the world, any religion in the world. You can point at atheism. You can point at anything outside of Jesus Christ. And it's all based on your performance and how well you do. If you do this sacrifice, or if you serve this well, or if you do this type of exercise, if you do this kind of pose in your yoga class, or if you do this, or if you think that, or if you're mindful about this, or if you don't believe in God at all, what you're actually saying is, it's all in my own power. Whereas Paul says, no, I know that I can't do it. So I choose to place my trust in the one, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Savior who gave himself for me. And because he gave himself for me, I give myself to him. So all this is worth it. You can take my life away. You can let me live. If you let me live, then more of the Roman God are becoming Christians, and that's a good thing. They can kill me tomorrow. I don't know. Maybe they will. But that's a good thing too, because then I just meet the one. He was loved Friends, you are loved. John chapter 17, verse 19. Jesus said this, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Who's the they? That's you and me. That we might be sanctified, that we might become more like him. But this word consecrate is a very important word. What it actually means is that to set aside... Jesus says, I'm setting aside, you can read it later on in Philippians, I'm setting aside everything that I had in heaven, I'm going to set it aside, and I'm going to make it about them and their sanctification. Why? Because that's the will of the Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, What notice, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. So I don't think it's inappropriate, therefore, for me to say this. Jesus Christ said, for me to live is you. And for me to die is you. And Paul understood that. And it exploded within him. He said, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator was willing to die on a cross, a shameful death, because he loved me, so that my sin that I'm responsible for could be forgiven, so that I could have connection and, 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 and oneness with God, that I could live forever in eternity. If he is willing to live for me, then I am willing to give everything for him. For me to live is you. Jesus said in his life, His life was so that we could be holy and and joyful. In Hebrews it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. This is the joy. Friends, we're living the joy. He laid his life down for you. And do you think in the middle of our hardship and challenge that the one who gave so much would give up on us now? Like, That is such a precious gift. He's not going to shrug his shoulders in the middle of our challenge and go, oh, well, they're going to have to sort it out themselves. I don't actually love them as much as I said they did. Of course not. That's why Paul could say he will bring it to completion. This too will work out well. Let me finish by reading this scripture. 
Paul again in Romans chapter 8, he prays in his letters that it's an interesting, if you look at his pastoral prayers, there's this common theme that, that we might know, that we might understand how much we're loved. And it's almost like if we could just understand how much God loves us, then everything else in life becomes freedom. Romans 8 and verse 31 through to 37 says, what then shall we say to these things? For if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So that's what I'm saying. If God gave us so much and loved us so much, why would he just leave us now? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That doesn't mean shiny new cars. That things there are all the important things, all the things that are in heaven, that heaven would be on earth. So he's going to give us all that love and joy and peace and and grace and self-control graciously given to us because he gave his son. Who can therefore be against us? And then he carries on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you believe that? Is this deep within your thinking when you look at your own life? If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the reality of living this out, then it's so simple to actually receive the gift that even as we're singing and as we're praying later, you can just quietly pray and ask God to forgive you for filling in that gap for me to live is with everything other than him. You're making yourself king and queen of your own life and you submit to him and you ask for forgiveness and his promises that he will forgive you. And Christians, those of us who have been Christians so long, in Revelation it says, as he was looking at a certain church, he says, they have forgotten their first love. Oh, that we would be a church that never forgets how much we are loved. Because if we remember how much Jesus loves us, then we can face life as more than conquerors. And people will see that. And that greater good will reverberate out of your life in ways that would amaze you if we could see. And not only that, you would become more and more like Jesus every day. I'm going to pray, and Steve and Josh are going to lead us in communion as I head over to the south campus and preach again, but my sincere prayer is so simple. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would get a fresh revelation of how much you love us. that, Lord, we would understand and comprehend with all the saints the height and the depth, the width and the length, that, Lord, we would be able to know in our hearts the unknowable in our minds of how much we are loved. And, Lord, let that be the power and the energy in our life. Lord, I thank you for the example of so many that have gone before us, and I thank you for the example of so many in this congregation who live life through challenge and hardship, not with just a fake grin, but with a deep joy, 
Thank you, Lord, for the example they set to us. Father, as I have said, let us be a church who knows how deeply we are loved. Thank you, Jesus. We love you so much. Amen.